Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm your host Damien Heath and I'm joined as always by that mischievous, rambunctious little kid, Luke Kane. How are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good too. We know it's been a while so we've got something a little bit different for you this month. We're going deep underground as we profile our first documentary of the series, The Tense Struggle Against Corporate Greed and Dangerous Working Conditions in Barbara Koppel's 1976 film, Harlan County, USA. Harlan, Kentucky is cold country where men work long hours for short wages, where poverty, black lung, and needless disaster are facts of life. In 1973, the men voted to join the United Mine Workers Union. The company refused to sign the contract, and so began the Battle of Harlan County, USA. Which side are you on? Without organization, you're a lone individual. Without influence... And without recognition of any kind. They're treating us like that we're animals, dogs. Well, we aren't. We're American citizens. Is it a fact that the Duke Power Company maintains housing for its employees that has no water and no indoor plumbing? Yes, sir. We were attempting to move our people into trailers, upgrade our people into better housing. We'll sit there and sweat when it's snowing. We'll stand right there until that UMWA contract is signed at Brookside. We have made them dozens and dozens of proposals. All of our life, we've been kicked around, we've been put in jail, we've been shot at, we've had dynamite thrown at us, and then you don't want us to have nothing. Well, I tell you, Mr. Horn, I'm going to be standing right there on that picket line looking at you just as long as it takes. We're not going to have the violence of the 30s. My father was a coal miner who was killed in the mines. And my husband and me was in the strike in the 30s in bloody Harlan County. And I do mean it is bloody, too. They're violent, so by God, you fight far with far. We can hold them, but we can't hold them with all them guns they got. That electricity burning over, aren't they? Somebody dying every day for it. If I get shot, they can't shoot the union out of me. Take the shelter if you can and lay the lead to them. Oh, dear. The New York Times says it's a fascinating and moving work. Q Magazine calls it supercharged excitement. It's powerful, provocative, exciting, and frightening because it's real. Harlan County, USA. The United Mine Workers of America, or the UMWA, became the largest and most influential trade union in the United States under the long-term leadership of John Lewis, who reigned from 1919 through until 1960. Lewis' style was autocratic and dictatorial. During his reign, he actively fought against the rise of socialism, which was popular among the rank-and-file members of the UMWA, and this fight led directly to a cooperative relationship between the union and government. This limited the UMWA's bargaining power, and Lewis was accused of using armed force and ballot box stuffing in 1928, and expelled members he believed were supporting communism. 
His leadership was not without success though, as he fought for and won good working conditions and decent rates of pay for his members at the time. Following his retirement in 1960, his hand-picked successor Tony Boyle soon took the reins of the UMWA. He was described as just as dictatorial, but without any of Lewis's leadership skills or vision. Boyle clashed with his membership over their desire for greater democracy and autonomy at a local level. UMWA members believed that Boyle's greatest interests were for the owners of the mines, and during this time there was less safety for workers, stagnant pay conditions, and often very poor living conditions, which included no electricity or running water. The local unions would force wildcat strikes, believing this to be their only hope in changing their circumstances. This would be combated by mine owners hiring scabs to cross picket lines and keep the mines going, often resulting in violence against striking workers. Often, the UMWA refused to help its striking members. Boyle was challenged for the leadership in 1969 by Joseph Jock Yablonski, who was a local union leader until his removal by Boyle in 1965. Boyle won by a margin of 2 to 1, but Yablonski, despite conceding, launched five lawsuits against the UMWA and asked the United States Department of Labor to investigate the election for fraud. On December 31st of that year, Yablonski was murdered in his Pennsylvania home, along with his wife and daughter, by hitmen hired by Tony Boyle. It was later found that $20,000 of embezzled UMWA funds paid for the assassination. In May 1972, after a long two-year process, the Department of Labor threw out the results of the 1969 election and ordered a new one. A new group within the UMWA, the Miners for Democracy, nominated 26-year veteran of the mines Arnold Miller as their leader. On a campaign of democracy and autonomy for miners, Miller went on to defeat Boyle and win the election that December. In September of 1973, Boyle was arrested for the first-degree murder of the Yablonski family, and he died in prison in 1985. It was the election of Arnold Miller that Barbara Koppel originally intended to document when she began work on Harlan County, USA. She had received a small $9,000 loan to film the Miners for Democracy campaign, but when she arrived with her crew in Kentucky, she was confronted with an active picket line. Miners who worked for Duke Energy at the Brookside Mine were striking against the company's refusal to ratify a vote that the workers had taken earlier that year to join Miller's UMWA, of which they had not previously been a member. Koppel, cinematographer Hart Perry and assistant Anne Lewis began filming, garnering the trust of the local striking workers over the course of a 13-month-long shoot. During this time, Koppel made regular trips back to New York City, raising money to continue the film through grants from foundations, individuals and other groups. She wrote hundreds, maybe thousands of grant applications, often more than one to each foundation. She begged banks for money, and when they turned her down, she begged them for the use of their photocopiers and fax machines so that she could ask others for money. For two months, she charged every cost to a master charge card, saying with wide-eyed disbelief, I don't know why they ever issued me one. She earned money not only through grants, but by working on other people's films, and together with Nancy Baker, edited together footage after hours in a donated editing space to make showreels to try and attract sponsors. Eventually, the team finished the shoot at an estimated cost of $350,000, and Koppel carried $60,000 of her own debt from production. They'd shot more than 50 hours of footage on 16mm film, and by her own admission, had enough to make separate films on silicosis, the safety of miners, the history of unions in Harlan, corrupt unions, strip mining, and underground mining, and the national coal contract. 
The film that Coppola ended up premiering at a single cinema in New York City would go on to win Best Documentary at the Academy Awards the following year, and in 1990 was chosen by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry. In 2007, the membership of the International Documentary Association named Harlan County, USA, the fifth greatest documentary ever made. So, Luke, which side are you on? (laughs) Well, I'm definitely on the side of the coal miners. I saw the film only a couple of weeks ago. I know that you've always said that it's one of your favourites, and I've just put off seeing it. But I I thought it was remarkable. I I really loved it, and um, I think... The most striking thing about it is the bravery that it must have taken to make it. The majority of Australians live by the coast and inland where any kind of natural resources are is very sparsely populated areas. And that's very different from the United States where, yes, a a huge number of people live by the coast, but those inland areas are definitely more built up than they are in Australia. And then you've got, uh, for instance, the Appalachian Mountains where Kentucky and Harlan County is, that are so rich in coal resources that the entire economy in those places revolves around it because those cities are kind of there because they've got mines nearby to go and uh, mine the coal. So it's very different for Australia where people tend to travel for work to go and work in the mine for a few weeks and then they go home to their coastal city, whichever coastal capital city they live in. And, you know, I think it's close to 90% of Australians live in a capital city along the coast. So it's very different than the US. And, yeah, we don't have necessarily the requirement to have unionisation, especially as they did in the 1970s in America, because there were just so many things going wrong there. I I think at one point 2,500 people were dying on average per year in the mines in the 1920s. So, you know, a ridiculous number of people. Those are obviously the the extreme ones, but then you've also got things like black lung killing people and all the kinds of health complications that come with working in the mine because there there weren't those safety mechanisms put in place to protect them. And then also their life was horrible. I mean, we have people in the documentary saying that they worked, you know, 18 or 20 hours for nothing. Yeah, so I think uh, they were on $26 a day. And the whole film is feels like this kind of raw cry of the working class, you know? It feels like it's people just screaming, screaming against the disparity of wealth in America and against how unfair it is that these men in suits, they make all their money and buy all their yachts on the backs of these broken-down slaves, essentially. It's very, very moving and very important film. And this is obviously just one story of many that could have been told. Absolutely, yeah. You do get the feeling that it's like one of those this is one of a million type Mm. stories. Absolutely. So the term documentary can be used to cover a lot of filmmaking styles and often cited is the text by Bill Nichols called Introduction to Documentary and his six modes of documentaries. We don't have time to go through all of those here. That would be a longer podcast, but I'm sure over the coming years we'll, have exa- we'll cover examples from each of these modes. I have put down what I consider to be the most uh, three most common styles, and they are firstly expository documentaries, which are those which aim to inform or teach their audience, often through narration. So all of the Ken Burns documentaries like Civil War, Baseball, and David At- Attenborough's output, such as Planet Earth, fall under this heading, and it's probably the most common form of documentary and what most people would think of when they think of a documentary. The most palatable, really. 
performative documentaries have really taken off in the last couple of decades and this style is often called the Michael Moore style so anybody who's seen one of his films knows exactly what we're talking about. They are often told through a single person narrative from personal experience and often, as is the case with Moore, the idea of truth can be fudged directly because of this subjectivity as in saying, I'm telling my story, that's what's on screen and my truth revolves around my story. The observational documentary is the third kind, and those are the documentaries which essentially place a camera alongside an event and film it. The people being portrayed are generally the ones interviewed for expository footage, if anybody. This footage is then edited together and largely, shall we say, speaks for itself. What's presented is obviously a somewhat skewed version of what happened, in that there's still some subjectivity from the filmmakers. However, these styles are largely accepted to be more truthful than the performative style of documentary. And Harlan County, USA is in that latter category, an observational documentary. Koppel's never seen nor heard from. Her camera is present and pointed solely at the subjects, in this case the miners and their wives. They do become a part of the story at one point, but this is never the intention of the filmmaker. And there's no voiceover telling us what's going on, and the title cards are very sparse and purely factual. When I was watching it, I was aware of how minimalistic all the technical devices were. You do get some talking head interviews, but they're set against natural backdrops. And very often, they're not interviews. People are just singing or they're, they're just you know doing their chores. We see women doing chores. There's no voiceover um, narration, no reenactments, as you say. She sparingly uses stock footage occasionally. That's just to give us some idea about a uh, historical perspective on mining. Just very few expository captions here and there, mostly to keep us up with like political developments. And the rest of it's really just a series of kind of photojournalistic scenes that capture the kind of drowsy coarseness of that life. And, you know, you really do get a, a sense of where you are. And that's what's wonderful about the film. Yeah, it's almost procedural in a lot of ways. You show the procedure of these people meeting up for their meetings to, to organise the number of people that are going to be on the picket line. So Yeah, it is procedural, but it's also very much, like, humanitarian. Hmm. And, you know, she captures... She, there's so much nuance that she captures in people and so much quietness so many moments where people are off their guard and you just see the real person. It's really lovely and it's kind of in that very minimalistic way that we're drawn into the story. It's very, we're very gently drawn in. It would be very easy in the first 10 or 15 minutes, I think, to look away or to, or to go do something else. And, and what happens as the film progresses is that the camera becomes more athletic. As the situation becomes more stressful, we get a lot more motion and movement. You know, particularly the scenes with the picketing lines and and the protester meetings. That's true. Yeah, yeah, and you get that. Obviously, the camera being knocked down at one point in the documentary, which I call the Blair Witch moment. <laughs> Seriously, that is. So, there's one scene in this film for our, you know our listeners who haven't seen it. By the way, you should definitely see it before you listen to us because we don't want to spoil it for and it's you. So readily available on YouTube. It is. Yeah, just um look up look it up on YouTube and the whole thing's there. Hmm. But there is a scene near near the end of the film where uh, during a, a protest at night or in the early morning hours early morning. where the picketers are shot at and bashed, uh, including the director and her crew, which I think were about two people. Mm. And it is just like this camera that's moving. You can't really see anything. It's very disorienting. You hear gunshots. You hear this 
terrifying screaming from some woman um, who must have just been absolutely terrified out of her wits. And then it cuts to this very, very clear slow motion shot of Basil Collins. Blinded by the light. Yeah, and he's he's got a gun and he's just driving. And I don't know if it was slowed down. It was image. slowed down, yeah. Yeah, but it is uh, some of the most frightening, like viscerally frightening images. I think they must have slowed down about... Uh, you know, three quarters of a second of footage to to stretch it out to about four or five seconds in the film. Yeah, well, it was so um, condemnatory seeing that, you know, it was clearly him and he was clearly armed and he was pointing a deadly weapon at them. Mm. It's interesting that later in the film he gets arrested for that and I wonder if this footage helped those picketers secure well, that arrest warrant. Okay. It did, yeah, absolutely. Because that's what I thought it must have been, because it would be very hard to prove something like that, and he went over and arrested him straight away. I thought, God, they've got to have something pretty good on him. Well, they had the they had the warrant, so that had been issued by a court. But uh, that's what I mean. That I'm wondering if that's how they got the warrant, yeah. showing that footage. Yeah, they did. Cinema Verite is a style of documentary filmmaking which is very closely associated with the observational mode. The term itself is French for truthful cinema. It came to prominence in that country throughout the 1950s, and in the late 1950s it sparked the emergence of a very similar style in North America known as direct cinema. This movement came about partly due to the advent of smaller, lightweight film cameras which were able to be operated handheld, and which were, by that decade's standards, very portable. Along with the lightweight cameras came portable sound recorders, which replaced soundproofed trucks, which were previously the only way to get atmospheric location sound. So these two advancements allowed small crews access to areas very cheaply and efficiently, often almost out of sight, in order to film and observe without participating. Direct cinema was defined by the filmmaker's desire to capture reality and present it truthfully. The other goal was to question that reality and its relationship with cinema and its audience. In that way, direct cinema was made possible by its portable technology, but that technology was not a focus of the films. Rather, the films posed questions of ethics to their audiences. Harlan County is a really good example of a direct cinema film. Uh, In fact, I think it's a perfect example in all of this because Koppel considers herself a political activist first and a filmmaker second. Uh, This film is definitely shot on the cheap. You only have to look at it. By a three-person crew, it wouldn't have been possible with large cameras and with sound equipment which required a detailed setup. The film often looks and sounds terrible purely from a technical standpoint. But on top of that, it speaks directly to its audience with questions about corporations, greed, working conditions and particularly the health of workers, uh, posing the question how many deaths is too many, union hierarchy from the very top to the very bottom and the role of women. And these questions aren't easy either. While watching this film, we feel confronted by what is portrayed and also by what is being asked of us, and that's the true power of direct cinema. Although I think that in this film, and perhaps it was because her first film, you know, when when Michael Moore makes documentary, he's sort of punching you, like he's so opinionated and he colours his opinions so aggressively. In this film, you don't get that kind of aggression from Koppel. Certainly the questions are there to be asked, but she asks them very gently and very lucidly and very um, non-hysterically. Mm. It isn't like sitting there watching Bowling for Columbine where you feel like you just want to throw your hands up in the air and scream. There's more breadth. There's more room to have an internal discussion as you're watching it because you're not being charged with a, with a point of view. Mm. The film's certainly partisan. Like, you know, um, Koppel, we can see she's on the side of the coal miner, the rank-and-file people. 
I think it is a little problematic, especially towards the end, the fact that she doesn't have an extremely clear position about unionism and about things like that. You sense her ambiguity near the end of the film when you get a series of title cards. I almost feel like, even though I was curious to know and you did need to know, I wish it had been done in a more in a way that was more cohesive with the rest of the film. A lot of people wish the film had ended at the end of the strike. That was a common thing that she heard. Yeah, but I feel like you did need to know all that stuff about Miller and, you know, everything. But even the even the coal contract the next year and the fact that they gave up the right yeah. to strike. I mean, I think that's very important and it's a footnote. I think it's important too and that's why I think I wouldn't say get rid of it. I would say find a better way to do it. Mm. Find a more and a gripping way to do it. See, I have no problem with it. It does feel like there's been this climax and this is just kind of a summary, you know, as most films have that section after the climax where they just show you what happened afterwards. Yeah. And this feels like that to me and it feels like an adequate way of doing it without making, I guess you could tell a whole other story with it. And so you really have to be careful about how much you go into that because it is a whole other story in itself. It is. And interestingly... Her, I told you I watched uh, American Dream, which was a documentary she made a few years later. About a strike at Hormel Foods in Texas? Yeah, it was about a worker strike at a Hormel meatpacking plant in Minnesota. And that film really does go into the complexities of unionism. You know, unionism is on one hand, it's necessary to protect the rights of the American workers, but on the other hand, it can have a damaging effect on the economy overall. And it can create, you know, disparities between pays of people who are doing essentially the same kind of job. And it really does call into question, you know, in the film, we essentially have these two union leaders, uh, one who represents the international and one who represents the national. And they come into conflict. The national decide to go on strike against the advice of the international union. And then what happens is because they're on strike, essentially, if they fail, they are going to compromise the integrity of the international union. So you see all of this infighting amongst union workers, and it really does highlight, and for me, it made sense of what unionism really is all about. Harlan County doesn't do that. It touches very lightly on the union aspect. What its primary focus is on is the coal miner workers and their plight. Even though it doesn't go into unionism, I don't really feel like it matters. I feel like the plight of the coal miners is so compelling that to have tried to add these additional things... I mean, she could have made a 10-part, 10-hour series, probably. Yeah. But she chose not to do that. This is this is looking... She has a great focus in this film, and she does keep to that focus. I think there's a... When you come across a documentary like this, there's obviously a fuckload of luck that's involved with it as well. Uh, you You run across this kind of horrible thing and you decide to film it, and you get an Academy Award-winning documentary, a reputation, and a career out of it, as Koppel did. At the time, there had been a whole bunch of documentaries and short films that were being made about Miners for Democracy, which is what she went there to shoot. It was just another one of those. So I think that uh, luck, whichever way it goes, plays a huge part in documentary filmmaking, and especially in some of the great documentaries. Of course it does. Yeah. One of the big reasons why Barbara Koppel's film is so extraordinary is because she obviously had something about her that the coal miners responded to, particularly the women. 
you know, we see them acting so comfortable on camera and you don't usually get that. You usually get people's walls, but we feel there are no walls here. She became one of them. She became one of the guys. And that's what makes it so amazing. These people who are very private, very proud, don't let other people in, don't let strangers in. She found a key. And if you see Barbara Koppel in interviews, she's very pretty and she's very warm. And I think that they must have just responded to her. When you see her, you almost, like me, I liked her straight away. And I can understand how she would have that special something. Did you like her even though she hasn't responded to your friend request? (laughs) Facebook. (laughs) Barbara, if you're listening. Barbara, add me as a friend. I love you and I love your movie. (laughs) Can Um, I just say uh, quickly, um, talking about technique, one thing that I did notice, which I thought was artistically very, very interesting, was that the beginning of the film, uh, we have these images, uh, which are these claustrophobic shots of workers entering the mine and they're lying flat on a conveyor belt that's rolling them into the darkness of the mine. It's quite a frightening image to see them go under like that. It you, you get the feeling they almost look like um, livestock that are going into the slaughterhouse, you know, and, and it really is like they have no freedom. They don't even have the freedom of their legs. The documentary ends with men walking of their own volition into the mine. And so we sense it's sort of like this lovely visual bookend to the film where we sense an optimism or a hope that, you know, those safety requirements will be put into place, that these men are moving towards a fairer way of working. Unfortunately, the deadliest mine accident occurred five years after the release of this film. Oh, that's terrible. I believe, yeah, 19, uh, 1981, I think it was. Could I say, because I haven't had a chance to give any testimony today, I knew we weren't going to get any justice. You say the laws were made for us. The laws are not made for the working people in this country. There's a person missing here today, and that's Carl Horn. The law was made for people like Carl Horn, not for us. So I knew when I came here, without offering any testimony or getting up, I knew what I was doing at Brookside because that's what I wanted to do. For once, I was able to take the offensive instead of coming down here to take a step backward to try to defend what we did. What we did is right, and we all know that. You've talked a little bit about how Barbara Koppel became like one of the guys, but she also became one of the girls. And um, I think it's hilarious that Barbara Koppel doesn't like to refer to this as a women's film because she's a female filmmaker and she does such a superb job of portraying the role of women in this community. And we have decided to take a little bit of a focus, make a little bit more of a focus on female directors this year. And this is our second podcast on a female director. I just think it's funny that we've chosen this film which isn't about women but totally is yeah it is i mean barbara Koppel said about the women and the men in the film there was no way of stopping the women and they were much stronger than the men i filmed everything that you could possibly film to try to bring more of the men's role but the men in appalachia are very low-key the women are very tough and very strong particularly during the strike you do get these these powerful women figures in this film i get what she's saying it's a it's about an injustice that goes beyond gender And the victims of this injustice are men, women and children and everybody else under the shadow of the Brookside mine and every mine across America at this time and in every industry where similar things were occurring. So I honestly do get that this isn't an issue of gender, but that doesn't mean that remarkable things shown in this film are not gender specific because I think they are. 
some gender-specific things in this film that are remarkable. Um, There's an obvious reason that women play such an important role in this strike, and it's because the mining company got a court injunction that allowed no more than six miners to be on the picket line. So basically, all the miners were men, only six men could be on the picket line. Uh, And you'll hear over and over again in this film, we're not going to win this strike with six people on the picket line. And that's true. It's a limit that's forced, that forced others in the community to fight on behalf of their families, their friends and their partners. And there's a great shot in this documentary where the cars driven by scabs, who are the people that continue to work in the mines, they go easily into the mine. And in the background on the other side of the road up against this cliffside, there's a whole bunch of men sitting down. And that's the whole mass of striking miners. But on the side of the road where the mine is, there's only six people because that's all they're allowed to have on the picket line. And when they crossed the street and sat on the other side, obviously that gave easy access to the enemy. So this shot just kind of told you, hey, if we don't get more people on the picket line, if if there's only six people on the picket line, here's a visual demonstration of exactly what's going to happen. They're going to be able to cross the picket line, work in the mines. Duke Power's not going to care who works in the mines as long as somebody's producing coal and nothing's going to happen. So women were forced into these roles by necessity, uh, which isn't to downplay their accomplishments because their accomplishments here are, are great. And the film places an emphasis on two women in particular, Lois Scott and Sudi Cruisenberry. And they're two proactive women who begin organising the involvement of other women in the community to support the miners. And I read this amazing fact that Lois Scott's husband was not one of the striking miners who worked at Brookside Mine. He worked at a mine that was already unionised. Yeah, she came from an outside town. Yeah, which I found amazing because she is definitely the most vocal of all of the women in the film. And I think it's a little unethical that Barbara Koppel doesn't make mention of that anywhere in the film. Yeah, she doesn't make mention of it, that's right. Because you really do feel like she is one of them. Well, you don't question it. No. Yeah. So the women eventually start standing on the picket line themselves when that injunction comes down. And there's some riveting scenes in this documentary where Lois especially will chastise other women and men who don't make the effort to get to the picket line. I think it's funny that Barbara Copper won't admit that this is a film, a women's film, because the film is so obviously slanted towards the women. Yes, and she says... A couple of reasons for that. One is that the men are very withdrawn, kind of, uh, that's the nature of men in Appalachia, and that the women are the vocal the vocal people. They're the people who have, I guess, the, the, the a lot of the say. And so that's a big part of the reason that women were there, and obviously the fact that women had to go onto the picket line because men weren't able to go there. So the men are pretty closed and the women are pretty open, I guess you could read out of that. So that's why... Koppel says that. You get the sense in the film, and not just in this film, but in other films that show strikes, that some, it's somehow emasculating to men to, to strike, I suppose, to go on strike. There's an embarrassment there that isn't there for the women. The women get empowered by it, but the men seem to be a little diminished by it, by what they have to do. Mm. I don't know where it comes from. I think you'd have to be in that position to maybe know how it would feel. Maybe it's shame, I guess. Uh, maybe. You, the idea has always been that the man takes care of his family. So maybe it comes from that. Maybe. I loved Lois Scott, sorry. Yeah. Just while we're going. So she's this, like, large, towering figure with this razor-sharp tongue, and she's so ballsy, and she's so powerful and passionate. And she wears her outrage on her sleeve. And when the scabs get violent, she tells her club that they are going to get violent. They're going to fight fire with fire. 
Um, Associate Director Anne Lewis compared her to the women's liberation activists who'd emerged around that time, predominantly in North America. A scene that I did enjoy watching, but I questioned whether or not it was right to show, was the one where the women... It was at a low point where the spirits mm. were really low and where Lois starts, you know, calling women well, alcoholics and whores and everything. And it felt a little bit like, oh, it, bitchy. I, I, don't, I don't like to use that word. It sort of raised in my head that stereotype of bitchy women. And I think what saves that scene is Sudi because she... Shuts them all up. Um, she gives the best quote of the movie in that scene. Sudi is the most touching. Yeah. Lois is the most outrageous and fun, but Sudi is the most touching. Sudi is who you walk away with. Oh, honey, they got to stay on that picket line. If they start scabbing, man, they got to go back down there. They can't let me down. I mean, that shit, just bring me a gun if they're going. It, I'd rather be dead if, if I have to I have to know that they're scabbing the books out. I can't stand it. I can't stand the thought of it. <laughs> Yeah, and that's one scene where you notice uh, that the women have a huge role to play. And I think there's a really literal reading of that later on. Uh, Obviously, in that scene, they've started, Lois and Sudi have started asking women in the community to support the men. And later on in the film, this is turned on its head. Because one of the men addresses a meeting and Lois and Sudi are there and he says, we're going to have a picket line in the morning and we hope it's a big one. It'll be different than the last time and these ladies are setting it up. We're going to have to get out there and back them. They come out to back us and we're not even backing them. It's disgusting. At some point during the strike, at some point during filming, their roles have been reversed and without the women, even the men know this is a lost cause. Yeah. And I think that's a fantastic scene because it just really it sets the tone for exactly how important the women were. If you didn't understand it already, the men are saying it's disgusting that you're not out there supporting them because without them we don't have a fight. Yeah. Barbara Cobble talks about how for many, many years women had been kind of relegated to the home and that they weren't really allowed to have a voice and weren't going to the streets and what she sensed from these women that she was following was almost a pent-up need Mm. to come out and lend their voice and, you know, express themselves. And so I think you get these giant figures in these women and and you do, you feel like it's, it's something that they're experiencing for the first time and it's very powerful for that reason. This is double mattress. I'll take this. Hell, I'm legally. I was legally on the picket. Yeah, I told him he was. I tried to show him in court down there, and they wouldn't accept the damn thing. Just go violate one law, <coughs> then that goes right back. Yeah, because you're a prisoner out there anyway. Right. Do you mind what's being done? Men are at a disadvantage, not just because of the court injunction not just because of feeling emasculated, but also there doesn't seem to be amongst them somebody like a Lois Scott or a Sudi, someone to really rally them and get them going and, you know, inspire them. We get Houston Elmore, but he's an organiser. He's a UMWA organiser, and he's come in, and, you know, he's constantly trying to pick up the flagging spirits of the men. And they're all just sort of sitting there, and they, they don't really know what to say. They're all tongue-tied, and they look crestfallen. One other thing I'd like to say about the men is that there is a sense of a mission about them. Very often we hear what men have done, 
but we don't see it. We and we usually hear it from the women. So a perfect example of this is um, one of the key key developments in the film is the murder of Lawrence Jones, mm-hmm. who's a very young striker, and he gets um, killed by Bill Bruner, who neither of these men we ever see. All we see is after the murder, there's a little bit of brain matter on the ground, and Barbara yeah. Coppola actually put, includes a shot of that, which is quite harrowing. It's a perfect example of the men, the way the men act out is very violent, It's and it's in the shadows, and it's in the dark, and the women are, are all there, and they're right there at the front of the camera, and it's all, it, it's it's open, and it, it's for, for you to see, whereas we always feel like the men's stuff is happening around the shadows, and that it's a lot darker, and a lot more violent, a lot more physical, and less verbal. Even to the point that when they decide to put a, uh, a broken down car over the train tracks so that the uh, just before Basil gets arrested the women then link arms and sing we shall not be moved there's a really good series of articles written by an online magazine called the sin essential and they look into women and something else that we'll talk about in a minute which is the music and i'll include the link in the show notes at celluloidjunkies.com but they finished their article on feminism in this film by stating Coppel is clearly interested in women's stories and contributions. It seems likely that she highlights the women in the movie, not just because of their significance, but also because she is interested in documenting how this stressful, sometimes traumatic strike affected women as well. The women of Harlan County provided much of the lifeblood of the strike, and Coppel's documentation of the strike provided publicity, dignity, and a way to begin to heal. And I think that the success of the documentary in a wider release hinges on the women. Koppel represented them uh, as well as... She did as much for them in the presentation of the documentary as she got from them in making the documentary. Because without that, I don't think the documentary would have been anywhere near as successful. No, the documentary really does come alive when we start to get the women. Until then, you're kind of interested, but the women make it compelling. Not just what they're saying or their position, but who they are and what's coming out of their eyes and what is what is, what fundamentally makes them human, the way that Barbara Koppel manages to draw that out. It is a film about something, certainly, mm. but it's also just about people. You know, it's about fascination with people. And you can you can sense Barbara's admiration. For someone like Lois, for someone like Sudi, you can sense love almost. On November 13, 1974, Karen Silkwood, an employee at an Oklahoma nuclear facility, was on her way to meet with a reporter from the New York Times. She never got there. Documentary and, I guess, a dramatic film... I think there's a lot of parallels between this film and the Mike Nichols film from 1983, Silkwood. In that film, Meryl Streep plays the real-life Karen Silkwood, who was a chemical technician and union activist who died in a car accident after uncovering wrongful practices related to the health and safety of workers at the factory at which she worked. It's largely accepted that she was murdered by people trying to cover up the findings that Silkwood was going to whistleblow to a reporter at the New York Times, although nobody was ever convicted. The book Radicals in America, the US left since the Second World War, makes a direct correlation between these two films, 
saying they are both films that registered with popular culture as important examples of women's labour activism. The other films cited were the documentary Union Maids, the dramatic film Norma Ray, and bizarrely enough, Nine to Five. The way women are portrayed in these films, I believe, is just the Hollywoodized version of any portrayal of a real person. It's far more glamorous, of course, but it's hard not to be more glamorous than Harlan County, USA. But the fight is essentially the same, and the dramatic film is merely a way of bringing this same message to a greater audience. It's been done again many times since then. I guess one of the most notable examples since then is Julia Roberts in Steven Soderbergh's Aaron Brockovich. Whether or not the impact of the story is lessened or heightened by a dramatic film, I guess, must be explored on a case-by-case basis. Certainly, I think a successful documentary has a greater chance of asking us uncomfortable questions, and it's those uncomfortable questions which can spark responses. So how does the portrayal of this story differ between this film, Silkwood, and 9 to 5? And what are the benefits of the latter two? And I think the emotional impact is certainly greater when you're witnessing real people. These are your friends and neighbours, and if they're not, they're going to eventually be your kids or the kids of someone you know, and it forces an immediate empathy. But a film with Meryl Streep or Jane Fonda will reach a greater audience, and that's a given. The message may be downplayed, but subconsciously I think getting the story in front of eyes is almost as important as the way you present it. Certainly I don't think anyone left 9 to 5 thinking, oh those funny girls, they sure had it easy. And the emotional response from Silkwood is almost impossible to avoid. So these methods of filmmaking have their place when it comes to mixing entertainment and politics. What do you think? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, okay, so Harlan County, you're right. You are you get something that's far more profound because of the honesty, the truth that's missing from a glossy production like 9 to 5 or even Silkwood. Uh, but those films reached a bigger audience and addressed the same issue. They may not have done it in as profound a way or as meaningful a way, but it doesn't matter. If it raises awareness, then it is helping the people of Harlan County and all of the people that they represent. Um, a lot of people aren't going to seek out a film like Harlan County. A lot of people will never see a film like it, but they will go and see a Jane Fonda film or a Meryl Streep film. It's interesting because the, uh, the Karen Silkwood that Meryl Streep creates uh, for her film is... She, I mean, you know, she's an extraordinary actress and, and certainly there are things in that film or, or behaviours, mannerisms, where she really does capture some of the essence, just some of the essence of the, of the real women that we see in Harlan County. Although, I have to say, when I was watching Harlan County, it made me realise how fake Silkwood was. And I think that is, uh, that is an issue, but I, I also think that Films are not individual experiences. They are obviously individual experiences uh, taken, you know, I'm watching this film, this is my response to it. But if you go and see Silkwood, then you might go and see Harlan County because it's piqued your interest in it. That's true. And so I think that there is definitely, they they somewhat work together to bring about a a recognition for one another. Particularly, I think, um, films from filmmakers, uh, foreign filmmakers or non-English language filmmakers that are similar to films that have been hits in the United States are probably going to find a bigger audience. So, yeah, I I think they work together. And I would have to be a total fool to say, well, because Silkwood or 9 to 5 are uh, fictionalised, that they have no significance and shouldn't be made. It's unfair to compare those sorts of films with Harlan County, in, in a sense. And a lot of people are just not going to have the 
mm. patience, maybe, to watch Harlan County. But a film like Silkwood or China Syndrome, they're done as th- thrillers, really, dramatic thrillers. And so they've they've got that key that's going to get a lot of people in to have a look at that issue. Mm. Harlan County doesn't give you that key. I think it's interesting that in a lot of those movies like Silkwood and China Syndrome, and China Syndrome's not a union movie, but it is a movie about, uh, I guess, a corporation that's put workers' safety at risk. Mm-hmm. But so Silkwood, China Syndrome, Norma Raid, 9 to 5, North Country, Aaron Brockovich, women are the lead roles in all of those movies. Yeah. Even on the waterfront, I mean, Marlon Brando's the lead, but he, uh, but um, what's her name? That Even actress? Saying- She's the agent that gets him, you know, to do something, to be proactive, you know. Um, He's very indifferent. He's suffering from that same kind of emasculating kind of feeling, you know, that's kind of paralysing him. And she is the one that puts forward an agenda. Um, You know, there's that incredible moment in On the Waterfront where she says to him, um, she asks him a question, he's like, well, why do you care? And she says, well, shouldn't everybody care about everybody else? And that really gets to the heart of this whole thing. Mm. You know, uh, if if that were true, I mean, it's an, it's a, it's idealistic. It is idealistic, but it's so much of uh, what I said in the introduction, which is that unionism is almost synonymous with socialism and looking out for one another. So, I mean, you're right. There, there are these incredible women throughout all of these stories it seems to be something that women find easier to express i think it must come down to those kind of traditional gender an awareness of empathy as well yeah certainly an awareness of empathy yeah definitely and also the fact that you see a film like disclosure right it's a thriller it's a cheap cheesy thriller Yes, there is a real story there about sexual harassment by women against men. That's a real story. If that happens, as uh, as it does in the movie, that's a problem. However, typically that's not what the portrayal of that that we see. We see the harassment of women by men, especially in the workplace. And I guess that's because it happens far more often. There's a much greater history of it. Men have a lot more power. They get paid a lot more money. All of those kinds of inadequacies uh, imbalances, sorry. So uh, I think just by its very nature, it's a more compelling story to tell it from the uh, to tell the underdog story from the women's point of view. If you're talking about gender, yes, absolutely. I recently rewatched Disclosure and I had a rollicking good time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what it is, isn't it? <laughs> you get back here and finish what you started. There was one user review on Rotten Tomatoes which put it perfectly about the increased impact of the documentary format, though. And we're used to seeing this film, this story in dramatic terms, but, quote, to see the struggle played out right before your eyes with very real human beings losing out on their livelihood and their chance at a healthy, happy life to the greedy machine of corporate indifference is just a different experience entirely. And that's what it is. Yeah. It's different. I mean, it's different from drama. It's different from comedy. Puts you in a different place. I think it's really interesting what you said earlier about how Koppel said I'm a political activist first and a filmmaker second. I came across that quote too and it helped crystallise the feelings I had about Harlan County. I did struggle and I still do struggle with the idea that it is unashamedly one-sided. I don't mind it in terms of it showing the coal miners, but the way that it photographs or the way that it portrays Carl Horn and a couple of the other coal bosses, I did find problematic. 
you know, the first time we see him, he's like this sneering, self-satisfied guy in a suit, and he's always shot in these extreme close-ups. Pauline Kale wrote that it was like Copper was getting extra close as if she was trying to make sense of his face and what he was saying. And I think that's true. Obviously, greed is the primary motivator of these these men. Certainly, the documentary makes makes you feel that way, that it's greed. But Koppel doesn't explore where this greed comes from, if there are other factors that contribute to it, to, to you know, Horn's reluctance to give the miners a contract. You know, were there political p- pressures at play? Uh, were his, was his job at stake? You know, we, we don't get into any of that. There's no attempt to understand him. He's just presented as this one-dimensional, totally corrupt, evil villain. I mean, maybe it is as simple as that, but I don't think so. I think there must be more at play. Duke is the kind of natural enemy in this movie, and it's represented by Carl Horn. And then you've got the other enemy, which is the Union itself, and then you've got the story of the miners. And uh, you've got uh, representing Duke on a personal level, which is given a bit more, I guess a bit more balance, is Basil Collins and the Scabs. I think filmmakers work within their limitations and that those limitations might be budget or location or the length of the film or the style that they're shot in. So whatever it may be and on whatever movie, there's limitations. And Koppel's biggest limit in telling a two-sided story is that one side of the story was unwilling to talk, even if she had tried to get that opinion. And I'm not sure if she had, but I can't imagine that even if she did, that they would have said, yeah, come and interview us. I just don't think that happened. You talk about greed, and I don't think a primary motivator of uh, a corporation is greed. I think a primary motivator of a corporation that probably has uh, a public listing and it has shareholders to pay off is profit. I think it becomes greed, not that that's their motivation, but I think it becomes greed when you put people in danger for that profit, which is certainly what happens in the mining industry. And therefore, it becomes greedy because you're saying, hey, I still want to achieve that profit no matter what the cost. Yeah. And uh, that's when it becomes greed. So I don't think that's the motivator. I think that's the result of that actions to get to profit, um, which is obviously that's, pro- that's, a, that's a motivator for any business, especially a public business. They've got people to answer to. Given the limitations, and particularly the fact that she had to tell it all from one side and try to be as balanced as possible, I think Copper did a stellar job in being as objective as possible while pushing an agenda. And there's definitely certain elements that are subjective uh, in that the narrative is driven by one side, we're present at their meetings, we're standing with them on the picket line. However, we are given a factual and understated view of many things that I'm sure the filmmaker could have been far more one-sided on. And I think a perfect example, we'll get to it a bit later, is Arnold Miller betraying some of his own promises in accepting a contract without a right to strike. So these things are presented. There's a little bit of, I guess, commentary on them in the way that they're presented, but she stops there and then she decides to show the story. So I think given that limitation, she actually did a really good job. Personally, that's how I feel. But didn't you feel like you wanted more exploration about these these bosses and their motives? I don't feel it was lacking from the movie, no. I almost feel like either do it or don't name them and don't include anything about them because the minute that you include them without, you know, through such a narrow scope, you're going to make them look like one-dimensional, cartoonish type people. And the film doesn't do that to anybody else. And you're talking about Horn? Hmm. Okay. Not yeah. just Horn, but even, um, I mean, <laughs> what's his name? Boyle. 
Yeah. You know, uh, obviously, he is just completely detestable. He had a whole family killed. So I don't know how much more of a side you can really put on somebody like that. But I, I feel like either do it or don't put them in at all. Don't even really have them mentioned. Or don't have any, any sound bites. Don't get any 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 shots of them talking. I mean, the few times that Carl Horn is included, he just looks loathsome. Yeah. I don't know if he's the one, but one of them, one of the worst moments in the documentary is when one of the coal bosses says that he's disgusted by the behaviour of the women and thank God his wife isn't like that. And he just comes across like this conservative misogynist wanker. Yeah, I'm not sure that is him. That might have been Norman Yarborough, who was the Duke Energy. Yeah, I don't think it was him. I think it was Yarborough. Mm. There are little moments like that that are just so, so persecutory. They really do make them look vile. Mm. And there's no redemption for them whatsoever. It bothers me. I, just, I would have liked more exploration of them, of their, of their thinking. I mean, look, coal was the major source of power at the time. There's pressure coming down from the very top. So there's certainly a story to tell because um, the owner of Duke Power would have had a lot of pressure on him as well. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, there's definitely a story to tell. I mean, one of my uh, other favourite scenes is when Basil is driving in the car and uh, I, I find him really quite likeable in some of these scenes. He's, there's horrible actions being taken by him against some of the striking miners, but he's doing his job. Uh, he asks Koppel for her accreditation and she asks him for his and he replies, well, you know, I think I might have misplaced mine and both of them laugh. And it, it, you know, it makes him quiet. It, it, it really adds a humanity to Basil Collins, who hasn't had that before that scene. He's really quite a funny character in time, at times during this movie. The scabs are not so much shown in this movie, are just Collins, who's the foreman. Um, so I can't really comment too much of, on those, but we have to ask the question, like, is it Barbara Koppel's duty to show these people in a positive light. And I think if she's trying to portray reality, or at least not in an absurdly negative light, and if she's trying to portray reality, then I think it is. Because there's grey areas in life. It's not all black and white. There's good and bad on both sides of the fence, or in this case, the picket line. Certainly, I believe a documentary with a fair representation of both sides is more likely to have a positive effect on its audience. Because I think the audience that goes to see a documentary, especially a documentary like this, is intelligent enough to know that a one-sided representation is probably hiding some things. But at the same time, I think that audience, if they do get the one-sided representation, I think that they know, hey, this isn't the complete story, but it's a good start. And that's worth something as well. I don't think they do know that. I think people who seek it out, who uh seasoned documentary watchers know this maybe yeah i mean for example making a murderer came out and you know it riled everybody up got everybody so angry i remember talking with cameron about it i'd just finished watching it and he was so outraged by it like so many other people but while i was watching it i was very very conscious of being manipulated mm being told it from a perspective that I they wanted the filmmakers wanted me to to see it they wanted they wanted they were totally in Avery's corner and everything was skewed to favor the injustice that had been committed against Avery and so I that made me immediately suspicious 
Not that I necessarily think they were wrong. You know, Stephen Avery probably was wrongly convicted. But I just don't like it when documentaries really do hit only one side of the fence and keep hitting it and hitting it and hitting it. I don't see a point in that. And I think it can be quite uh, unethical and quite dangerous because you end up having all of these people who think they're informed because they've watched a documentary when really they're not informed. They don't know shit. They're just, <laughs> they've just seen one side and they're, they're going with that, you know. They're letting somebody else form their own opinion. Yeah. And that can be dangerous. So with Making a Murderer, you are pretty much told to believe that Stephen Avery, who was wrongly convicted of a crime, spent time in jail and then sued the government that put him there, was then framed again for a murder he didn't commit because there wasn't enough money in the kitty to pay him out. And if you leave without this viewpoint, you haven't bought into the narrative. But there's a possibility that Avery is guilty, that he did commit a murder. And the series doesn't allow that thought to enter your mind unless you're willing to actively question it. Mm-hmm. And I agree. There is, a, there is a serious question of ethics when it comes to that. Yeah. There's recently a documentary I saw, um, OJ Made in America. Yeah. Like, goes for six or seven hours. And that one, best documentary as well. And that is extremely well done in presenting both sides and and not telling you OJ committed this crime, Mm. you know, but showing you this is what happened. I would much rather see a documentary like that I feel less condescended to than I do when I'm watching something like Making a Murderer. Not putting the documentary down, I appreciate what the filmmakers did. I think it was a beautifully assembled film. In Making a Murderer? Yeah. But I think it's extremely limited in its its field of vision and, and quite manipulative. The good thing about Making a Murderer is that tons of people watched it and they may watch similar, uh, similarly presented films at, at some point. So they may watch uh, films about similar things, documentaries about similar things. And I think uh, widening the audience is good in itself, although you've got to do it in the right way sometimes. Uh, I found an online magazine called The Daily Free Press. And uh, they had a quote about this. They said, After careful thought, I believe the answer to the question of objectivity is somewhere in the middle. I know this probably seems like a cop-out of an answer, but it's the only sensible solution I see for such a complex question. No matter what happens, filmmakers are going to have opinions, and those opinions are going to make their way into the work. And the audience has a right to hear the truth at the heart of the subject on which the documentary focuses without being misled as to what it is. The only way to deal with both of these countering points is to accept that the opinions of the filmmakers are going to bleed into the film, but to also expect the filmmakers to create a piece that stays mostly objective. This is obviously the ideal situation, but it is very unlikely that filmmakers who want to assert their opinion are going to back down in favour of what's best for the audience. As a countermeasure against this, when you watch a documentary, just remember that there is going to be at least a little bit of bias towards the filmmaker's perspective, and that this is not always a bad thing. Hmm. There's uh, one lyric in the Florence Reese song, Which Side Are You On?, which I think summarises how Koppel must have felt when she was making this movie. And it says, They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. Koppel couldn't have heard that lyric and said, No, I'm going to be a neutral. You just, <laughs> if you're in that time and place, I don't think you can do it. And that's one thing that actually, I'm glad you brought that up because it just reminded me of something I felt while I was watching this film was that it forces everybody 
no matter who you are, coal, coal miner, not coal miner, wife of a coal miner, coal boss, but you have to, you do have to pick a side. Mm. There's no room for neutrality in terms of how she presents the film, but there's also no neutrality for anybody in this community. Yeah. You, you know, even the people that just want to go to work. Yeah. Like, just say you're desperate. You've got a wife and a kid. You've been out of work for six months and you can't feed your family. And then there's this thing saying, look, come into the mine. There are a heap of jobs going because they're all on strike. We'll pay you four bucks an hour. Some people don't have the luxury of turning that down. That's right. But by crossing that picket line, they have picked a side. Mm. They are a scab. I did hear that a lot of people that crossed the picket line in uh, 1973 were descendants of people who crossed the picket line in the 1930s. And the people who were Union in 1973 were the descendants of people who were Union in the 1930s during Bloody Harlem. So I, I guess it's taught from a very young age. And, yeah. and I think the mother of Lawrence Jones says that at one point. Her son is still alive at this point and on life support, but she says essentially that I would rather he be a Union man and that this happened to him than he was a scab. And it's funny because the the strikers are so anti-scab. And I remember as I was watching the documentary thinking, well, they're just going to work. Like, I don't understand why they're so angry at them. It wasn't until I watched American Dreams that I understood about crossing what a crossing a picket line meant. And this happens in every industry. It's not, it's not just that. It happens in sports, for instance, where there's, uh, there's uh, the South African cricket team. Yeah. And and people who continued to play for an international South African cricket team when they weren't allowed to play international cricket. I mean, those people were considered to have crossed the line. I mean, it happens all over the place. People who are willing to do something at the expense of somebody else. It's funny that you can go to work just by going to work, just by driving in and going through the front door to start your work day. You can be taking a political position. Mm. You're forced into it. That very act immediately pegs you on one side of the fence or the other. Mm. There's a part in American Dream where the meat packing company rehires a bunch of people, right? And they don't want them to go in and work, obviously. They want to hold up production, so they block off all of the entrances in and nobody can get in. Huh. And then there's this woman and she confronts them at one of their union meetings and she says, I missed a whole payday yesterday because I couldn't get in and get to my desk. And they all start to sneer and hiss at her and say, well, we're doing this for you. We're doing, why, how can you? And she said, well, look, you're choosing to miss a day's pay because you believe in something. But I didn't have a choice. I needed to get that pay for reasons A, B and C, for my kids and everything. But that day I missed out on it because of what you guys did. And one thing that you told me is that, and I haven't seen American Dream, but you told me that it brings up the ethics of whether you should strike for increased wages. Mm. Because that's obviously a very different strike yes. to the strike that's happening in Harlan County. Yeah, they're uh, fighting for their lives in Harlan County, whereas in... Somebody who crosses the picket line in Harlan County is making a much bigger statement than somebody who crosses the picket, picket line at Hormel Foods. That's true. That's true. Uh, a bigger statement in terms of, well, the coal company is more important than your very life. That's right. Whereas in American Dream, it's more about quality of life, standards of living. But I hate to say that there's degrees of anything these days. Well, yeah, it's dangerous. <laughs> One thing that I just would like to quickly say about this film is that uh, we haven't really talked about the, the jeopardy that Barbara Koppel put herself in. I read a story where she said that because they were staying with different families of the people that they were, their subjects, 
the toilet was outside and she said that they would have to go in teams to the toilet at night and that while somebody else kept watch on the house yeah, yeah because basil collins at one point put out a tried to put out a hit on barbara koppel tried to hire people to kill her they would go to the toilet and they would just hear distant gunfire and that it was utterly terrifying for a good 18 months to two years of just you know constantly worrying well the strike went for 13 months but there were people that would were shooting into the homes of the of the coal workers. Yeah, they showed that in one of the scenes, uh, the bullet holes on the side of these places. And they had to line their walls with mattresses so that the bullets wouldn't come through and kill them. Yeah. It's amazing. So the music in this film is uh, not what most people would be used to hearing. It's very, very distinctive to the location in which this film takes place. And that region is known as Appalachia, which I uh, apologise if I'm pronouncing incorrectly, which in cultural terms refers to an area along the Appalachian Mountains from about West Virginia down to Mississippi. And that runs right through Kentucky where this film is set. When it was officially recognised as a region, Appalachia became well known for clan feuding, such as the Hatfields and the McCoys, and moonshining, or the illegal production of high-proof spirits such as whiskey. The area became the centre of the coal mining industry in the United States, but mechanisation led to job losses and widespread poverty, and Appalachia became known as a region of poor people and rich culture. And it's this rich culture which is so present in the soundtrack of Harlan County, USA, with folk music pervading our oral senses throughout. Often this music is sung by the subjects of this documentary, Miners and Their Wives, and explicitly references people and events that have occurred in the region. Many of the songs come out of, uh, came out of the bloody Harlan strike of the 1930s, including the brilliant moment during which Florence Reese, whose minor father died and whose minor husband was now dying, recited her song Which Side Are You On during a, during a UMWA rally while Coppel and her crew were filming. And this music may not be to our liking, but it gives us an insight into the people in this region. Like any form of art, it is made from sacrifice and beams with honesty and torment and anger and sadness and happiness and resilience and strength. And in this documentary, it's used as exposition too. We learn so much about so many events just through the lyrics of these songs, so much so that Koppel doesn't need to do it herself through narration, title cards, or talking heads. Yeah. Luke, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you hate this movie, with 10 being really, really hate this music? Uh, it's not my kind of music. <laughs> I, don't, I don't... I need a number. Well... So 10 is hate and 1 is love. Yeah. Oh, like maybe 7. What is that all? 7 or 8. That's not bad. In the 19th century, most people that lived in Kentucky were farmers, but this was a very, very difficult way of life. It was very difficult terrain. The uh, the soil didn't necessarily lend itself to uh, agriculture. So when coal mining industry arrived in the 19th century, it dramatically changed the lives of a lot of people living in that region. They gave up farming and they moved into towns and secured wage-paying jobs, you know, with the promise of a better life. And um, sadly, these dreams were very quickly shattered when the disparity of profits and the cruel working conditions became apparent to the men who took these jobs. And so these songs were written not only as a means of cultural expression, which they certainly are, but also as a form of protest. And the film, all of the songs in the film are union protest songs. Mm. Uh, The songs are 
very simple. They're often a cappella. They usually tell a story, and they haven't a stringent, downbeat, deep south kind of sound. They're often exploited in films to tip off the audience that we're entering backwater mountain country. It's the kind of music you associate with hillbillies, like you know, Deliverance, and you know, they kind of sound like this. Do you want me to do one? Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> My father worked in the mines, got black lung, then he died. And my heart went by the side of the life of the mind. That's really good. The only thing that I noticed is that so many of them would go something like, My father worked in the mind. <laughs> the film like is just peppered with them. It is all over it. And... I watched this film with my headphones on. That would have been a painful experience for you. It was intense. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, you need them. You do need them because they tell you so much about Kentuckian life and the history of the people and they really set a mood. They are absolutely essential. See, I don't mind this kind of music, of course. I love Bob Dylan and folk music and 60s kind of sexual revolution kind of guitar, acoustic guitar music, and I always have. Grace Elizabeth Hale from the online magazine Southern Cultures wrote a brilliant, very in-depth article about the use of music in this film. And she stated, Nimrod Workman's tune 42 Years provides a thread of continuity through the complex narrative with its digressions into the history of Black Lung and the MFD's fight to put the rank and file back in control of the UMW. Other scenes too demonstrate this fluidity of speech and song and suggest a seemingly natural breaking into musicality, as if a song is a deeper, more powerful form of expression that reveals something of the interior self. And I'll provide a link to that because that is uh, that article doesn't just go through this movie. It goes through a whole history of kind of the stock footage, the music in this movie, but also in that area, in other documentaries and throughout time and gives you a whole history. It's really amazing. It's a very long article, though. We're 42 years in a mighty long time. I labored and tall down in a coal mine. Institutions being portrayed as the other in these films. I think it's really interesting that none of the coal workers are named in captions, but all of the bosses or people with job titles are. And I think that highlights this idea not only of unification amongst the picketers, but also the individualism of the greedy mining bosses who are speaking with an agenda of an inst- of the institution they represent behind them. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't noticed that. Institutions uh, are governed by blanket rules that rarely take into account individual needs and circumstances, and very often these institutions fail the very people they've been set up to protect or nurture or educate. Institutions aren't people and their concerns are impersonal. How they are portrayed in the media and how they can increase profits or cut costs are very often at the expense of people or doing the right thing. So I think fear or suspicion of authority figures is largely rational. And certainly in this film, it's very rational. Yeah. So the minute that somebody comes onto the camera with a job title, we're on our guard. We know that this isn't the person that we're meant to connect with. 
because those who represent more than themselves are cause for suspicion. We wonder what their agenda is. Um, the strikers come as they are. They're interested purely in fighting for their rights as an individual. You know, there's an openness and an honesty to that, which stands in contrast to the men who are speaking for an organisation. Hmm. I think there's some pretty interesting shots in there uh, of police. And I think particularly the tall police officer who stands with the the male striker, striking minor, who is, uh, I guess, the closest to being the face of the strikers on the male side. And he stands there just staring at, staring down at him. That cold stare. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting shot. There's definitely scenes where the they're just performing their job. But there's definitely scenes where Koppel puts a link between police officers, between the local sheriff, the judges, the mining companies, and the government. And even at the end of the film with Arnold Miller. So... Anybody who does the slightest thing in their own job to impede the strike becomes an enemy in this film. Yes. And like Florence Reeve said, there are no neutrals here. So anybody who is neutral about that is is immediately on that side as well. I think it's it's interesting in the way that Koppel shows uh, the police and the, the judge who sentences uh, some of these people to, what, 60 days in jail. Yeah. But then there's that scene in New York City, I believe. Yep. Yeah, where one of the striking miners is talking to a police officer, and this police officer is really lovely. Yeah, and that's such a sad scene. It is such a sad scene because he's uh, the police officer is earning more for standing there doing nothing, as the police officer readily admits he's do he does. Yeah, I wondered when he said that how his bosses felt about that moment. <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe they didn't see the film. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, I, I think that in, in that scene. Is shown in a good light. He's saying, hey, you should be asking for more. I get more and I'm doing a job that's nowhere near as deadly. And what's so sad about that scene is that the coal miner's like, well, I'm well paid. And he's like, no, you're not. Yeah. It's, it's interesting as well that the men talk about pay and the women talk about safety. Uh, and that's a very touching thing. So whenever the men talk about the strike, the first thing that they generally talk about is, is wanting a decent paycheck. But when the women talk about the strike, their safety um, mechanisms and, are their first priority. And you know, I believe that there is a reason for that. I believe the reason for that is because the men never believe that their job is ever going to be safe. So if it's not going to be safe, I might as well be getting paid more for it because there's a chance I'm going to die. Whereas women see the other side of that and say, yeah, okay, we can make this job safer. If we make this job safer and they get paid the same, well, so be it. I mean, obviously you want them to get paid more, but at least they'll be safer. Uh, But I think the men honestly believe, hey, this has been going on for centuries. Let's be pragmatic about this. It's never going to be safer. I'm just going to at least make it more worth my while to take that risk. There's that scene where Cobble gets that woman who talks about being uh, living in in a house that was adjacent to the mine that where there was that explosion in 68 where yeah. I think 78 people, miners, were trapped and died. And she talks about how her view was obstructed by them because they didn't want her to see what they were doing. And her, her anger, her contempt for them in that moment is very moving. Her anger that they got away with that. To talk a little about Miller who begins as this heroic figure, you know, he saved the UMWA. Especially with how much of an absolute C word. 
Boyle was, I mean... You're so glad when Koppel, um, in sort of about the midway mark through the film, takes us through the history of the UMWA, talks about Boyle and all this corruption, how he was in the pockets of the coal bosses, that he was just acquiescing to all of them at the expense of the people he was representing, and then clutched to his power to the point where he was able to even commit murder when it was threatened. You know, vile, awful person. And then Arnold Miller comes as, as you know, someone who really did work in the mines, who suffered from black lung, and who, who cared about the people, and and made these incredible speeches that, you know, were very rousing. He's almost like a Martin Luther King-type character, some of, the, some of the speeches he gives. But then at the end of the film he seems to have fallen into the trap that so many men in power fall into. You know, when he's making some very dubious decisions, particularly, the, you know, notably the one you discussed, where he's, he's looking at getting a contract that does, has a no-strike clause in it. And a no-strike clause, just to explain that, is not the right of the people to walk out of their job, because obviously anybody has that right to walk out of their job. But during a strike, striking workers have a right to strike and are paid strike benefits. So the no-strike clause essentially says if you choose to walk off your job because it's unsafe, you're not going to get paid strike benefits. Barbara Koppel admitted in interviews that she had very definite personal feelings about Miller, so had to be very careful to remain objective. And you can feel her mannered approach at the end of the film when she starts to discuss Arnold Miller. I guess the most courageous she gets in showing that Miller has changed is that moment where he's like, let's talk outside. Mm. And then we get a shot of him talking to a coal miner, but we don't hear what is being said. So that gives us an impression that there's all this kind of secret, dirty business going on and that what he's saying is, you know, he doesn't want it to be heard by the cameras. This is very contrary to what we've come to expect from Miller. You know, we think that he is he is a hero and that he is brave, but then we feel like he's a bit of a turncoat, and that's just, it's really awful. You know, and, and it's only inferred, and that's what I don't like about the ending. It feels very weak and very tacked on. It suggests that he's, he's turned corrupt without coming right out and saying it, and I think that is a bit of a problem. Koppel said about that, um, about that last section she said doing the last section of the film was difficult because during the editing of that there was a split between the union's vice president and the president there was a lot worse that could have been said about Miller and his collusion with the coal operators I was real nervous about doing it because I felt that I had a political responsibility and that if this film ever reinforced the right or the vice president that I would be very upset by it so it took a lot of thinking, a lot of figuring, a lot of discussions to try to figure out how to handle that section of the film. It was handled very lightly with the footage that I had. I had very definite personal feelings about Miller, but it was just a real struggle in dealing with that section of the film and dealing with it in a way that people, miners and other people, would understand more who their enemies were and where the power really had to come from. I had to do it without coming out and showing it in such a way that might endorse something that's worse. That was really one of the main political decisions of the film, not to do that. So Miller, who was the president, was still more left-wing and with the miners than the other side of the UMWA leadership where he was being pushed. So, you know, he could have gone further to the right against the miners' wishes. Ultimately, he got re-elected, he negotiated one more contract, but he didn't really have any power within the UMWA after that particular national coal contract in 1975 i think it was he then suffered a stroke or something and uh, his leadership was essentially taken away from him and then i think it was a few years after that somebody else from the miners for democracy got voted in right Mm. 
Yeah, it's sad. I mean, we see that help happen very often with people who get elected into these positions is that they start out very strong and very influential, uh, you know, and they do a lot of good, but then they just seem to kind of fizzle out. I mean, certainly I think the fact that Miller won against Boyle uh, ultimately meant that things were better for the miners. No matter what happened with Miller in the next few years, it yes. was better than if Boyle had still been in power. Well, he was a criminal. Yes, he was. So, Luke, how did uh, Harlan County, USA perform at the box office and with the critics? It premiered at the New York Film Festival on October the 15th, 1976, the day after it had finished being edited. It was met with a standing ovation at that festival. Despite playing in only one small theatre in New York, it made the 50 top-grossing films list in Variety, which was no small feat considering that it had no advertising budget and was competing against blockbusters like King Kong and Marathon Man. First Run Pictures picked up the film and gave it a national theatrical run, There are no published box office figures available online, although I did find that it had a wide audience and Copper was more than able to pay off her $60,000 debt she'd accumulated during production. Contemporary reviews for the film were glowing, although many reviewers cited problems with the film's structural naivety. Critic Elliot Stein wrote that although not flawlessly made, few documentaries rivet you to your seat. This one does. Gary Arnold of the Washington Post called it an absorbing work of partisan documentary filmmaking. Pauline Kael, who admired the film, wrote an extensive essay on it for The New Yorker. Barbara Koppel isn't a great documentarian, she wrote, but she has a great subject in Harlan County, USA, and she has the taste and sensitivity not to betray it. She may not have the vision of an artist, but artists with vision didn't go to live among the coal miners of Kentucky and didn't scrounge up the money to put together a feature about them. She did. And the directness and simplicity of her approach gives us something we wouldn't necessarily get from an artist. No matter what their subject, the great documentarians give us films that express them. Their vision transforms the material. This film is humbler. It conveys the material without imposing its own way of seeing. When you hear the director's voice asking questions, she doesn't seem at a distance from those who answer. She's another character in the film, rather than the artist conceiving it. The film went on to win several awards, most notably the 1976 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. In 1990, it was selected for preservation by the United States National Film Registry. But for Barbara Koppel, perhaps the greatest reward came when she screened the film for the people of Harlan County. She remembered the audience reliving the whole strike, saying, They cried out against the strike breakers. They were crying during the funeral of Lawrence Jones, the man who was dying of silicosis, was brought in on this big hospital bed to see the movie. I sat in the back with my hands over my face, but they really liked it. Miners and their wives are going around as speakers with the film. They're using it for study groups to raise consciousness and funds. It's bringing the people in the cold fields closer together. time to do the quiz and wrap this episode up <laughs> so weird for me like like to take a back seat in this episode <laughs> i'm enjoying it okay look I'll, I'll start okay 
Barbara Koppel directed two Best Documentary Academy Award-winning films, Harlan County, USA and American Dream. Has anybody else achieved this feat? Yes. Very good. Do I get that point? Yeah. That's how easy that question was. <laughs> Who were they? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, okay, oh God. <laughs> uh, okay, number one, uh, what year was Boyle convicted of ordering the execution of Yablansky and his family? What year was he convicted? 1980. 1974. Oh, okay. Wow, so of course that happened before the film. <laughs> fucking idiot, aren't I? <laughs> the film was released in 76 and it's contained in the fucking movie. <laughs> Well, what she did was she went into a time machine. (laughs) Name one other director to have directed a Best Documentary Academy Award winning film on more than one occasion. Can I Google it? (laughs) Well, that's what I did. You can try. Uh. (laughs) You won't find any information about it. I had to go singularly through every movie to have won Best Documentary Academy Award to find the director. Put them all in a list in Excel and sort it. So, since that information is not available on the internet, I will make that available <laughs> on our show notes. Oh, good. Um, look, I have no idea. I'm going to say Michael Moore, even though I know it's not true. No, Michael Moore did win for Bowling for Columbine. But the others to have won were James Algar, who directed the Walt Disney documentaries, The Living Desert, The Vanishing Prairie, and White Wilderness. Jacques Cousteau, the French president who directed The Silent World and World Without Sun, Rob Epstein, who directed The Times of Harvey Milk and Common Thread Stories from the Quilt, and Mark Harris, most recently, who directed The Long Way Home and Into the Arms of Strangers. Okay, question two for you. In the scene where Basil Collins asks to see Barbara Koppel's ID, what is happening off-camera that we don't see? Oh, uh, I feel like I should know this, but I... uh... I don't. Are they... I don't know. Basil is twirling a gun. Off screen? Oh, under the seat. Between, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah he's actually... Okay. So the whole time that he's talking to her there, mm. he's kind of indirectly threatening her. And is that stated in an interview later on or something? So that's in the... Uh, Criterion did a documentary for their release. Oh, okay. And Barbara Koppel says that he'd been twirling a gun that whole time. How many more questions we can ask? I've got two more. Well, we'll do three each. Uh, with the, If it's a tie, we'll do um, our fourth. Okay. Following the release of the film, Koppel returned to Harlan County to hold a screening of the movie for minors and their families, as you just said. Which organisation protested the screening? The Ku Klux Klan. Very good! I think they hung a goat. Something like that, yeah. Near where they were doing it and it was... Cut it open, yeah. Yeah, so she needed armed guards. And so that had uh, kind of happened in between the... Uh, end of the strike and the release of the movie is that the Ku Klux Klan had come in as part of that right-wing kind of movement which was more associated with the the mining companies and the scabs that had crossed the picket line. Uh, so life continued to be hell for, yeah. these, for a lot of these people. So my third question, uh, how much is the arrest fee that the picketers have to pay the sheriff for he'll take Basil Collins into custody and what is the charge? Uh, well, I assume the charge is the you know, the firearm possession or something like that. And the fee is $6? It's $7. $7. And it's brandishing a deadly weapon. I think <sighs> we'll give you that because you are bombing this quiz. So okay. Fun. I did have another question, but you've won the, you've won the quiz. I've won, two to one. So I just want to say that um, right now, in this day and age, 
Harlan County, based on 3,141 counties in the United States, has the 10th lowest per household annual wage. So it is ranked number 10, 10th lowest out of 3,141. And it's $25,240 compared to the national average of $58,000. So it's less than half. There's actually three counties in Kentucky that have lower incomes than Harlan County. And of the national bottom 100 counties, 21 of them are from the state of Kentucky. I think the uh, national unemployment rate in the US is 5.6%. And in Harlan County, it is over 12%. So it's more than double. So these problems that are portrayed in the movie, financial problems that are portrayed in the movie, are not over. They're still very much in effect in in, in this um, Appalachian region, uh, Mississippi and Kentucky and West Virginia. And uh, there's the, all the states that are along there are among the lowest counties for per household income in the in the country. The last mine disaster that happened in this region of the world was in 2010 at the Upper Big Branch Mine in Virginia. It was a coal explosion that killed 29 workers. So these issues that are raised in Harlan County uh, are still issues. So Luke, what's your star rating for Harlan County, USA? I gave it four and a half stars. I think the product itself or the film itself is probably a four-star movie, but I added an extra half a star because I was so staggered by the courage that it took to make this film. I think it's a beautiful film. I think it's an important one. I'm really, really glad that I saw it. I feel educated and I feel wiser for having seen it. I would recommend it to anybody, but I think you need patience and you need to accept the limitations of the film and not get caught up in the visual arrangement and the um, visual quality of it. Uh, If you can kind of see past that, then you have everything to gain watching this film. Next time I ask you a simple question, please give me a simple answer. (laughs) Four and a half would have sufficed. I give it five stars. Uh, And it's it's my second favourite documentary of all time. I just have to mention my favourite documentary is from 1984 and it's called Streetwise. And I hate to be a little sheep, but I, after giving it serious thought, that's my favourite as well. Streetwise? Yeah. Yeah. Harlan County USA is very much I don't think we would have done it unless I'd chosen it because it's a film that I love Mm -hmm. so you have the choice of the next movie and what is that going to be? Well I thought that we would have a look at Terence Young's 1967 psychological thriller Wait Until Dark Ooh. We've been doing some heavy films lately between this and when you talk about Kevin and Fritz Long's M I feel like it's time just to have a little bit of fun with just a fun popcorn movie and Wait Until Dark is just so much fun I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah great We are coming up on the end of the second season of Celluloid Junkies. We've got a couple of episodes still to come. First of those will be Wait Until Dark, and then we'll have another one. And we'll see you very soon. Don't forget to subscribe and or rate and review us on iTunes, because that helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and uh, take care of yourself. See you next time.